What is crackalackin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you for the first time in a full week because we had dual cancellations fall through with guests uh, last week, so you only had one pod. We apologize, but you'll have two this week, and I'll try and squeeze in a third one at some point in the coming week so that the average stays for everybody. I'm here without Adam Frommel, who also had to cancel last minute at this point because he was extremely sick on Monday. I'm co- recording this in the very wee hours of Tuesday morning. We hope he's feeling better. We do not begrudge him for not being able to be here either because we were going to record on Sunday for Monday, but I am absolutely drowning in work and obligations at the moment. So I needed to to kick the can for that one. We push on anyway, though. We'll have our next pod for you on Friday. This is our Tuesday mailbag. Have a ton of great questions from the Discord to get to as well as some Twitter questions. First and foremost, though, need to remind you to pretty, pretty, pretty please with Sugar on Top, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume your podcast. Downloading every episode, throw us some ratings and reviews on Spotify and iTunes. We had a couple downvotes in recent weeks telling us to stick to sports, so help us juice those numbers up. That helps a ton. And the other single biggest thing that you can do to really help us out is retweet our promos on Twitter or just tell people who you know like hoops slash the NBA about this podcast and encourage them to check it out or recommend your favorite episode. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. We are on YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Please subscribe to us there. And also follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. All our personal socials are in the podcast description as well. Lastly, remember to join the Discord. That is also just something we're looking to build out uh, in the coming months, weeks. There's been a lot of chatter in there already. We do have roles for each team. Some of them have already been given out, but they are the um, executive vice president of Discord operations. So you can claim that for a team if if we don't have one already. We might hand out multiples anyway, but come join the Discord. The link is in the podcast description. We have a bunch of great conversations there. We're going to be running some fun stuff. We already have live game campfires, and I think I'll start doing something where I commit to sitting down to a game and I'll be there. We can all talk. You can ask me questions that won't turn into a podcast or even a chat. Just We'll be there. We'll wrap. It'll be loads of fun. That's all I got. So let's dive into this mailbag. We'll begin with our Discord questions, since those people took the extra step to come chat with us. Darkwing Duck asks, what's the closest distance between the number one and eight seed in a conference's history? So I went back to 1984 here, just because that's when the NBA sort of, or not sort of, they did switch to the, the, the eight teams per conference playoff format, I believe, is when that happened. And I, bu- I also believe the impetus for this question is we look at the East right now and the, the eighth place Nets are nine games back of the first place Heat. And that's a, a fair, that's fairly anomalous. You look at last year, there was a big difference in that in the Eastern Conference. We've seen a lot bigger, like there have been instances. I mean, look at this year in the West. The Clippers are 18 games back of the per- first place Suns in the West as the eighth place team. And so you, you look sort of at the East and even with the 10th place Hawks being only 11 games out of first and really, you know, kind of diverting from this question. There are also only six games in the loss column back of the fourth place Cavaliers. There's a lot of tightly contested races going on here. But so I went through, I found three of the seasons that stood out the most to me. I did balance the 98, 99 campaign from consideration. I didn't need, uh, because it was lockout truncated, I didn't need to balance the 2011, 2012 crusade off the record because they didn't qualify. Uh, there was only a six game difference in the Eastern conference or the Western conference. I can't remember since I closed it out. Uh, between the eighth and the first seed. But again, that was across a a 50-game season, so that didn't feel worth including. Uh, 2009-2010 is the winner here, technically. The eighth-seeded Oklahoma City Thunder were 50-32 and and seven games back of the first-place Los Angeles Lakers. 
Uh, the Spurs and the Blazers were also tied um, with win losses uh, to the Oklahoma City Thunder. So those three teams, six, seven, and eight, were all seven games back. That's a wildly close margin when you're going that deep into the to the Western Conference. There was also the 2018-2019 season. More recently, the eighth place Los Angeles Clippers and also the seventh place Spurs, since they were both 48 and 34, they were nine games back of the the first place Warriors there. And then the 2002-2003 season, uh, we were in the Eastern Conference this time. The Bucks were in seventh place and the Magic were in eighth place, both at 42 and 40. They were only eight games back of the then first place Detroit Pistons. So 2009, 2010, that is the closest one on record where there was only a seven game discrepancy from um, the eighth to the first seed. And it's, it's wild when you contextualize it this way, it's still the same distance, but the Lakers winning 57 games as the one seed and then the Thunder winning 50 games as the eight seed. That is just so darn close. And then of course there's that huge drop off because the Thunder in eighth place were eight games better than the ninth place Houston Rockets. So that was a fun question. Um, I guess, it'd be interesting to see whether the East could kind of come close to, to beating that the Raptors are in seventh place and they're seven games back of the first place, Miami heat, the nets, as I already mentioned, they're nine games back. It's possible that they could close that gap just because if Kevin Durant comes back soon, if Kyrie Irving's eventually able to play in every game, do we know when Ben Simmons is going to play just what they look like? I wouldn't put it past this season becoming sort of the new touchstone for you know, a, a small gap, but the smallest gap between the one and the eight seed. And even if the records don't kind of show it, you just based off knowing what the Nets could look like at full strength, you could probably make the leap and say this is one of the most tightly contested Eastern Conference playoff races in history. Either way, though, even just going by that raw, you know, games back in the standing. So this has a chance to really beat that 2009-2010 mark. This could even be a situation technically where we're looking at it like it was 98-99 when there was only six games separating the eight seed from the one seed. I don't know if we'll get to that point, uh, but it's making for one hell of a close to the season. And it's just, you know, I'm more fascinated. I'm fascinated with every aspect of the Eastern conference race, just because there's no seed that's just locked down at this point. You also just have the 10th place Atlanta Hawks being, you know, six losses behind the fourth place Cleveland Cavaliers. And there are just caveats abounding everywhere. The bucks are in fifth. Are they actually going to stay there? And they have the same record as the Cavs. When does Brooke Lopez play? What do some of their new additions look like? But Cleveland is dealing with a banged up Karis LeVert and Darius Garland, not to mention Colin Sexton's out for the season. The Bulls have some injuries in Caruso and Lonzo Ball. Zach Levine is playing through a knee injury. Uh, the, the Heat are great, and they're finally like sort of, they're the healthiest they've been all season. Uh, what do the Nets look like when they're healthier? Can the Raptors sort of, they're dealing with some stuff with OG and FEV right now, but are they too top heavy? Are they a team that could fall off? But I do look at these top eight teams specifically. And I don't think you can uh, assume that one is really going to plunge and you really have to go deeper. Probably you have to look at the Raptors or the Nets just because the Celtics are in sixth and they're five and a half games back of first place. And so I know like I'm throwing a bunch of numbers here, but the Raptors and Nets are the two furthest teams at seven and nine games respectively off the first place pace. And there's like a real chance that both those teams, if they're healthy enough are going to be good enough, get wins from enough good teams, uh, they can bridge the gap to where they are only five or six games back of first. I haven't looked at the schedule, so I don't know if the wind distribution can technically work out that way, but the East is a bloodbath right now. You can argue that the two most serious title contenders lie in the West with Phoenix and Golden State as much as they're slumping. I think some people would make the leap and say Memphis might belong in that discussion. They're only one game back of uh, second place in the West, by the way, entering March. That's fucking 
absurd. Uh, but just it, this just underscores sort of how hot and heavy the, the East has been. Even if you like the top of the West better, uh, there's just there's more parity in the East right now. And the, the Grizzlies are a perfect case in point. Uh, they're seven games back of the Suns who are in first place. And that speaks more to the Suns, but that's part of the top heaviness. And meanwhile, we're talking about a Raptors team in seventh place is only seven games back of the, the first place heat. So this race has a chance to go down when you're looking at one through eight, again, specifically has a chance to go down as the closest during the 16 team playoff format. I'm going to be very intrigued to see how it unfolds. Jake G asks, what are your reactions on the Embiid and Harden pairing after one game? Should the rest of the league just give up now? There have been two games since this question was asked. Again, uh, the podcast needed to belay, be, be delayed. He also adds, based on Embiid saying that was probably the most wide open I've ever been in my career, I'd be nervous if I had to play them in a seven-game series. I mean, unless I'm a Hornets, then you just unleap point Todd Mason Plumley and sweep the series. Yeah, so, you know, I've been impressed with how easy it seems like Embiid and Harden are fitting together, and I've not looked at purposely. and. I did not look at any on-off numbers or get into the nitty-gritty data. I just watched every action from the two games and involving those two. You can run high screen and rolls to death with them, and I think that that's going to be devastating. There's going to clearly be maybe an adjustment with how Harden needs to pass to someone who's not a lob catcher. There was one instance, I think it was the was it the Knicks game, where he just threw a pass that you know Embiid's not going to finish it. He had to catch it and come back down, but he scored anyway. I also think it's going to help that um, having the pick and pop weapon at the the five with Embiid. I don't Harden didn't look uncomfortable throwing him passes, and I I think it forces the defenses to think more just because no Joel Embiid is not this traditional role man threat, but because he has so many ball skills and can stop on a dime and and shoot, there are more things that they have to plan against. Even if you're not worried about him finishing lobs. And I, I think we saw that to an extent. I don't really want to use the Knicks game as an example because they're fucking clueless. They have just some of the watching them trying to defend Harden uh, and bead pick and rolls with Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson on the court at the same time was actually painful. My eyes are still sort of bleeding from it, but you look at sort of the Timberwolves game and there were a couple spots where Harden was able to probably deliver the ball a little bit earlier to Embiid than he would with other bigs because you can trust, again, that he's either going to pause and shoot or he can put the ball on the floor. That's not something that Clint Capella or Dwight Howard, uh, at least the Dwight Howard uh, in, in Houston, was ever going to do. And I don't want to say spares Harden energy, but if he's able to deliver the ball earlier, it doesn't even have to get going downhill before he's throwing some of these passes to Embiid. It makes his job a lot easier than it's ever been. I think that this is more of an organic pairing than people were crediting. Uh, Embiid's already done a good job of sort of tethering himself to Harden when Harden's bringing the ball up. And so perhaps you're not seeing moving forward as many from scratch touches from Embiid when he's on the court with Harden. That's ultimately fine. The workload that Embiid had to carry for most of this year was arguably too heavy anyway. He was the fulcrum of both the offense and the defense for Philly. You're still going to have minutes where you only have one of them on the court uh, to begin with. So he's still going to get those types of touches I like the way that this pairing has looked, though, so far. And I think uh, Matisse Thybul might be the teammate in Philly that benefits the most from this. Just the way defenses have been losing him when he's hanging around the dunker spot or if he can cut to the basket. Uh, Tyrese Maxey will probably benefit as well with some leakouts in transition. You can say the same for Thybul. And I've been kind of impressed. Uh, I would need to check, like, the average possession time numbers on this. I've been impressed with the number of leakouts, at least, that Philly has tried or that they don't seem that they're bogging down too much in the open floor after misses. They're not looking to blitz it, but like this isn't something that's coming to a slow grinding pause. I will say that the the free throw parade is real and it might be at times unwatchable. 
it's going to be incredibly effective though. And so when you look at sort of the landscape of the Eastern conference, I don't know where you should put Philly in the pecking order of title contenders. There are just, there's so many things that matter here. I'm really two games uh, at this recording into the Harden and Bede era together. So I don't want to make any just profound conclusions. They're there though. And I would put them ahead of the nets in the title hierarchy. I don't know that I trust the bulls in the playoffs just yet. I need to see it. And there are people done great breakdowns of the bulls, what DeMar DeRozan has done, what their defense can be like at full strength. I would assume most been huge from them. Zach Levine is just, his offense is so scalable when he's on. Um, I just, there's something about them. It just makes me wonder whether their offense is dynamic enough to weather the storm of the, the playoffs. Maybe Vucevic is sort of a, you know, connective passer for them goes a long way. And he's quietly played a lot better over the past, I don't know, month and a half or whatever it's been. Uh, but I would put the Sixers ahead of them. I'd still take the Bucks over Philly. I'd take, I'd take Philly over the Nets. I, Miami, I'd probably take over Philly at this point. Those are the two teams, though, that I'm I'm only guaranteed to take over Philly right now. If you're looking at Toronto, Boston, Cleveland, Chicago, those are all up in the air. Um, so, and Brooklyn, I'm just ready to pencil out of the title contention. Right? We can use the ifs and ifs and ifs. If this happens, if Kevin Durant's healthy, if Kyrie Irving's playing every game, if and when Ben Simmons plays, at some point, there's too many ifs here. There's just too many uncertainties, and we they have to start. Not they're not going to tank, but they don't have their, they don't control their own pick this year. But you do have to start thinking, okay, this is more of a 2022-2023 team, if that, because what happens with Kyrie Irving's free agency because he has a player option. Overall, though, I, I really do like what Embiid and Harden seem like they're going to become. And I do think that the whole, uh, can Harden accept that this is Embiid's team and it's sort of just a lateral move from his status in Brooklyn where that was already going to be Kevin Durant's team or people comparing it to Kevin Durant arriving in golden state and finding that he was never going to be as popular as Steph Curry. I don't think Harden was under the illusion that this was ever going to be his team. I actually fully believe, I, I don't care what people say because there might've still been problems and awkwardness behind the scenes. Maybe James Harden and Kyrie Irving just never vibe, including from last season. I could, I could buy into that. If Kyrie Irving plays this year is, is available to play every single game. We're probably not talking about, uh, James Harden becoming a malcontent. And so he remains the one to me that's upended Brooklyn season more than, than anyone else. This next question comes from Bondam 34. What was the worst trade you can remember that didn't involve a star? I was thinking the King Sixers capped up in 2015, I believe might be mine, but I don't know if there's some I'm forgetting. I racked my brain for these. That one is of course a good one. The Kings had designs in 2015 on just clearing all this cap space and signing big names. And I, I, they ended up with Rondo was like the, the highlight of that summer for them. Uh, that certainly has to be a candidate. I think you can go back to the 2013. I think it was yeah trade for Bonyani where the Knicks give up a first round pick. It ends up becoming Jakob Pertl, who's a pretty damn good basketball player, but that was just sort of a signal that New York didn't really know how to handle the success of the 2012, 2013 season uh, prior where it was, Hey, let's put a ton of spacing around mellow and veterans who allow him to sort of just go about his business. They optimize his offensive skill set. Don't ask him to do too much defensively or even as a leader. And the Knicks just, I don't really know what they were thinking in that one sneaky candidate. And I don't know if this is recency bias creeping in. We might look back upon the Celtics essentially trading the pick that became Desmond Bain just to skirt the luxury tax to get off uh, Enos Canner, Enos Freedom, whatever the fuck he's calling himself these days, that might go down as just one of the worst non-star trades ever. It'll be even worse if Desmond Bain grows in to a star. And so there's 
so many caveats there because other teams passed on him. The number 30 pick isn't necessarily supposed to turn into anything then, but that just the optics of that just look so terrible because in theory, that was also a type of player that Boston needed at the time and, and could clearly still need. Now he's a lot like just looking at his ball skills. Like that was someone who could have definitely helped the earlier version of this team, even before they traded for, for Derek white, that just might be one we look at and go, Holy crap. It was just Desmond Bain. The pick that became Desmond Bain was traded as part of a, a salary dump. But those are the two that really sprang to mind for me. That might be my next bias creeping in, but the, the Bargnani deal uh, was just awful. And what makes this exercise tough is I think when you're looking at it through the non-star lens, those are the trades that you might just remember the least because they're normally inconsequential, even if they do have some longer term consequences. Uh, and then even just the, for the Kings specifically, I, that's a great candidate, that trade. But when you're moving deals like for cap space is it in you know how much do you penalize teams for doing that like how bad does it look if you don't sign stars because of how much of a crapshoot for agency could be um, I do lean toward that it's still knowing the back channels of the NBA teams have a lot of information and so if you're the kings and making that decision without having knowledge that you're getting the players you were targeting first and foremost then yeah that just looks terrible um in the moment and then of course even years later down the line and just to i mean the scale of draft equity they gave up to was just absolutely blasphemous so it's certainly a candidate but it's interesting to uh to think about those those types of trades you begrudge when the knicks acquired tracy mcgrady gave up assets because they were trying to make the run at uh, lebron james in 2010 and this was not prime t-mac it was you know like a hobbled t-mac who i think did win his first game at the garden i actually attended it i believe um but like that, even the Knicks again, when they did it with Kristaps Porzingis, because they thought Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant were coming only to see them uh, go over to Brooklyn. That's a man. That franchise has tried way too many times to get other teams as players only to fall through. And I know that they're always tangentially mentioned as like preferred destinations. When was the last time that players actively wanted to go to the Knicks, even when they were agitating their way out? Mm -hmm. Mello wasn't the last one because I'm pretty sure CP3 really wanted to go to New York, but they chose the path of amnestying Chauncey Billups, signing Tyson Chandler, and then therefore just limiting their, their flexibility to go after CP3 while having stat on the books as well with Chandler and Mello. But it just, it hasn't happened in, in forever. And the team still operates like they're that type of destination. And if, if Zion's really unhappy in New Orleans and they think they've positioned themselves because they have RJ and they have the whole Duke reunion with Cam Reddish, uh, that is a detour that we don't, a rabbit hole we don't need to go down right now. And I tweeted this out the other night uh, in, in the wee hours of the night, just like when I'm recording this. I'm getting ready to say some pretty recklessly optimistic things about a Pelicans team that has Zion in it. There you look, look, Willie Green has done a good job sort of coaxing defense out of this team and especially limiting opponents in transition ever since the Pelicans dropped to, was it 6-18, and 18, whatever, whatever it was, like the low point of their season. And CJ McCollum has had some really high moments for them. Their offense is going to be TAF thermonuclear as fuck, as we say around here once uh, it can be that already, but if Zion plays this season or if they just have them for next year, and this is largely the same cast that's in place, good luck stopping them. I am. If you give me a Pelicans team at full strength, I, I'm ready to say some stuff is, is all I could hint at. Hoop informatics had two questions and he said, favorite and least favorite player to watch. Uh, so favorite, if we're looking at stars, I really do enjoy Steph, Giannis, Devin Booker, or probably just, and Ja, of course, like are the most entertaining high names for me. 
when you look at higher profile, least favorite players to watch, I do not enjoy watching Russell Westbrook anymore. Um, like that's, that's become sort of a chore for me when you're looking at sort of less heralded guys. Uh, if we're trying to you know do the basketball nerd flex, and I'm honestly not trying to go like too far off the lane here. I really enjoy watching O'Shea Brissett in Indiana. He's one of those guys that makes you want to ha- watch what happens away from the ball and the work he puts into it. I'll also say he's a rookie, so I don't want to necessarily throw him into this already. I would assume it has been a joy to watch this year because he plays with this like frenetic energy yet is still under control. So that's incredible. I don't know if there's like a least favorite like player to watch. That's sort of a, like not like a, on that scale because I, I guess I can't generate or muster strong feelings about those players. Westbrook might be my least enjoyable NBA player to watch this season there though. And there's also the, um, there can be times where it's when we're looking at higher profile guys, like, yeah, it absolutely is difficult to watch James Harden for stretches. If he's, you know, pounding the ball too much and the free throw parades in, in Philly that are bound to come, how does that slow down sort of the, the pace of the game? So there's certainly that to consider. I'm really trying to think of if there's like a, you know, I, I don't I really feel like dumping on a non-star. Not that I want to dump on a star anyway, but just like someone who's on a lower scale that I really don't enjoy watching. Uh, I used to not enjoy watching Andre Drummond, but I feel like the past three or four years, he has like these guilty pleasure moments that I'm definitely 100% all about. So you could, you could certainly throw him out. The, no, I wouldn't put him in consideration for this, but he's certainly not one of my favorite players to watch. I mean, yeah, I honestly don't know. That's uh, Maybe I should have given that one more thought i guess i just don't have like strong feelings on players who aren't these uh marquee contributors i could i could probably do without malik beasley if that matters to anybody or this season's version of malik beasley there are moments where jordan wara is painful to watch but i i sort of enjoy the the adventure behind it all for him so just going through those uh i don't really want to i'm not going to name a nick and just say julius randall but he's been he's been tough to watch for a lot of of this season. Yeah. I think that's the, the closest you're going to get out of me is, is uh, saying those types of players. I think Garrett Temple has been a rough watch this season too. I I haven't caught the past. I caught the Lakers Pelicans game and I don't think he really played in that one. So they're sort of a breath of, of fresh air. I did think about, no, that's, that's not even a good one. Uh, But yeah, that's the closest you're going to come for me to sort of dumping on players that maybe shouldn't be there. If anyone has their own suggestions, feel free to, Get me on that one. Hoop Informatics also asks or poses this scenario. Pretend Andrew Wiggins and Julius Randle swap places. How do we think of those two if Julius Randle was with the Warriors and Andrew Wiggins was with the Knicks? That's an interesting question because of some of the wing development we've seen under Tibbs in New York. So Wiggins' role might be more complicated, but given what we've seen in you know the minutes from Quentin Grimes before his injury and then, of course, R.J. Barrett, does he sort of have a quasi breakout if he's in New York and he has really competed on defense. What would he have looked like if he was on the Knicks last year? I tend to think that Julius Randle would look way better in Golden State than Wiggins would look in New York just because part of the part of the draw or for part part of Wiggins' effectiveness in Golden State is the way his role has been streamlined at both ends of the floor. When you've asked him to do too much, yeah, there's been times where he's delivered, but we've also seen of late when you are too dependent on him, like there are going to be really rough stretches where he just bails out before the rim way too often and doesn't give you any sort of pressure when he's putting the ball on the floor. I don't know why 
his role would be any easier in New York. They might actually need more if, you know, would they insert him into like sort of some of the RJ Barrett touches uh, because Julius Randle is such a high usage player for them. And Derek Rose has been injured. Kemba Walker doesn't work out. Andrew Wiggins probably ends up having to be a pretty high usage player in New York. And I don't think that's his uh, anything near his forte. And the other thing I think is Golden State has created this defensive ecosystem around him, behind him, uh, in front of him, just like, having all this sort of different talent to where he's been allowed to succeed. I don't know that the Knicks, I don't, it's not that I don't know. I don't think the Knicks have the same level of comfort there. Whereas with Julius Randle, Steph is so plug and play. I think he can work alongside anyone. There could be some iffiness with the Draymond Green, Julius Randle fit. But again, Randle has at least been willing to shoot threes, even when they don't go down. And Green has found ways to work with Kavon Looney offensively. So I can't imagine that would be, too much of a thorny fit, I guess, because Julius Randle likes to have the ball so much more than a Looney or even a Wiggins. That could create some redundancy, but he also gives Golden State a ball handler for minutes where Stephen Curry is off the court, and that could wind up really helping the Warriors. Uh, I don't know how much of a defensive expenditure it comes at, though. We've already seen the Warriors start to struggle after treading water without Draymond Green and Randall's not going to help you there. Uh, the last season version of Randall that was really just locked in, but this year where he's just letting dudes get behind him left and right, probably not. Um, I would say that we view Andrew Wiggins was never going to be an all-star starter or never should have been an all-star starter, but I think we would end up viewing him a lot more negatively if he was with the Knicks and Randall. I don't know if he ever, I doubt he ever has his second team all NBA campaign with the Warriors but he's probably a player that we could look at and say, oh, he turned into this glue guy or it's working out for the Warriors. Uh, even if I wouldn't predict that, I think it's pretty safe to say that Randall on the Warriors would be a much better player and or fit than a Wiggins on the Knicks. And I don't think that that's like a ridiculous thing to point out. Ian42 asked, Portland seems interested in trading for Jeremy Grant in the offseason. People in Portland seem to think he's awesome. Can you please explain what he does or doesn't do that makes him worth $20 million? A year. Look, what he does is he is someone that you can say, go guard the other team's best player who's basically not a point guard, and, and he can do it and hold up a lot. There's a ton of value in that. There's the element of 3 and D to his game, where even if he's a, a below league average on threes, he's normally going to be right around the overall league average, maybe not necessarily on catch-and-shoot opportunities, but you can count on him to hit open catch-and-shoot threes. What's been really interesting in Detroit for stretches is he clearly has more ball skills when you're looking at him, not just attacking in open space, but going at it in ISO. And it's not the most efficient play. It's not something you can lean on, but it's an extra layer to his game that he didn't plumb in Denver or Philly or OKC. And knowing that it's there, I don't want him as my number two, but if you get into a situation where he's your number three or number four, he might be more dynamic than the average, I'll say number four, the, the, the average number three or number four, I think even number three, you can go down because not every team's number three is Chris Middleton or, or Drew Holiday. Do I think he's worth the four-year, $112 million extension that a team who acquires him will have to give up? I'd probably skew towards no, but the league is is hot for guys that do even the the most complimentary version of what Jeremy Grant does, where he if he doesn't soak up possessions on the offensive end and then just defends his butt off and is spacing the floor or hitting standstill threes, uh, on the other side. So I get the appeal, but this is a fair inquiry about Portland where I think Joe Cronin deserves, I don't know if it's the benefit of the doubt, but this team deserves time to see what they're going to do with its flexibility, what direction they're taking it. Are they rebuilding around Dame? Is this supposed to be a quick retool? 
I do struggle to see the long-term vision. And maybe that's the idea is they believe that they can take so many different forms, have so many different options. That's why they've set themselves up this way. But if you're looking at going into next season with Dame, this year's lottery pick, Anthony Simons, do you, do you re-sign Nurk? Um, you've, ex- you've explored like some of the other youngsters on, on your roster. Plus you could also maybe have a, for once healthier Nas little, you have Josh Hart, solid guy. You you've seen good minutes from Greg Brown at points. Uh, Trenton Wofford has given you some, some interesting minutes too. Uh, what does Keon Johnson turn into? I don't know that that's a much better situation than the Blazers had. If it's a better situation at all, pre CJ and Norman Powell trade. And it's not even just about being slightly better. You want to have a clearly higher range of outcomes once you're moving on, if you're trying for the insta turnaround. I don't think that scenario really gives you that. They could have other moves up their sleeve, though, of course. And so we have to see what they do with this year's first round pick, assuming that they're going to keep it, which I would predict that they do, even though they've, you know, they've already shut down Nurk. We know Dame is out. We're probably going to get to a point where they need to shut down Anthony Simons if they don't lose enough enough games. So I, I this is this is a really fair question. If I'm Portland, like Jeremy Grant is not the answer to maximizing whatever they're trying to do in the post CJ post Norm Powell era. I think if you want a number two on your team for Dame to contend, I would argue they have to be better than Simons and Jeremy Grant. Like those, those two are your third and fourth best players. Now you're really working with something. And Josh Hart's like your fifth best player. And Nurk is, you know, there's, it's cool that if you keep Nurk around and he's playing the way he was before his injury, you, there might be blurry lines between a Grant Simons and Nurk on who's your, second, third, and fourth best player on any given night. So there's value in that sort of depth, but I think you need a higher-end number two uh, than C.J. McCollum or Anthony Simons or, or Jeremy Grant. And if you were going to go this nuclear route and you're keeping Damian Lillard, which you know he has not said anything, and I'm just going to default towards he'll stay in Portland until, or Portland will keep him until he says he doesn't want to be there anymore, which he has yet to do. I, I would not be inspired if Jeremy Grant ends up being the the most marquee newcomer from this entire operation, Jeremy Grant plus this year's lottery pick. And I, I think that's fair to say. So that's a great question, Ian. Luke J37, do you think the Cavs' success is sustainable this year or do or they do for a regression similar to the Knicks um, from last season? Yeah, that's, a, that's something that's interesting to think about. What I think is different about the Cavs is they're having this success while also missing their leading scorer from last season and Colin Sexton, who Zach Lowe has said this might just be the most disrespected 24 points per game scorer in, in NBA history, just because it came on pretty good efficiency and people are so dismissive of him and thought the Cavs, not everyone, but thought the Cavs should trade him while he was injured. And rather than even think about bringing him back in free agency, maybe you're not cra- Maybe you're not in love with the Karis Levert fit beyond this season, but Darius Garland, younger than Julius Randle and has already made like the all-star rise. Evan Mobley is a trans is a transcendent defender already. And you watch him on offense. There's like, I don't know if he can necessarily, is it think the game that quickly yet, but there's like a fluidity and also a, a complexity to some of the things he does with the ball in his hands, especially when he's around the basket. And as a passer, uh, you have Jared Allen, even if you think that Pascal Siakam should have been named to the East All-Star team over him, this is someone who's a defensive difference maker has improved on offense. And I think that's what separates the Cavs from the Knicks more than anything. This doesn't feel like as big of a flash in the pan because you have a lot of players who can grow from these career high points. Whereas when you look at Julius Randle, there was almost nowhere for him to go but down from that second team All-NBA. 
appearance and getting such a high impact season from Derek Rose, maybe not an anomaly, but his availability post-trade last year probably was. And we're seeing that now. He needed to have yet an, another procedure uh, while he was still trying to work his way back from his latest injury. So I, I don't think they're the next version of the Knicks. I do think some people fear they've rushed the process a little bit by giving up this year's first and that Houston second rounder to get Karis LeVert. I don't mind that as much because there's a chance that LeVert really ends up working out. Now you've given yourself a bunch of different options with Colin Sexton. If he's too expensive, you can let him um, let him walk. If there's a lot of interest in him, maybe you look at sign-in trades. Or also maybe just knowing how good your defense has been this year and how much you've struggled to generate offense at points in the half court and knowing that you don't have a ton of just knockdown shooters around your primary ball handler, the Darius Garland, or just period. Uh, having Colin Sexton, who's shown that he can hit threes, in addition to Darius Garland, like that still works with Karis LeVert. I don't know if you'd ever play those three together, but it does sort of, it, it deepens your offense. And so I don't think that's a bad spot to be in. And you also just have more intriguing trade assets at this point that you would actually give up than the Knicks do. Because are you married to Isaac Okoro? Are teams going to be able to talk themselves into Larry Mark and his contract? Kevin Love is in the sixth man of the year discussion right now, but he'll be on an expiring contract next season. Is there stuff you can attach to him or a contract you can take back that other teams might not necessarily want? They have more avenues worth exploring. But but beyond that, I just think when you look at the core of their roster, none of them, even though they might be operating at career peaks in a Jared Allen, a Darius Garland, and this is, of course, Evan Mobley's you know, debut NBA season, that's not going to be their actual uh, apexes. I mean, maybe it could be, but they're they're young enough to where you can envision them getting a lot better. And with the Knicks last year, it was, okay, maybe IQ can grow a little bit, but you're going to need to trust him and give him a different role and, and, and give him a long rope, which the Knicks have generally not done this season. You could have envisioned Obi Toppin being, being better, which he has been, but his role has not grown. Um, you can envision RJ Barrett being better, and at moments he has looked uh, looked great. And you know, going back and watching that 46-point performance he had last week, uh, if I were the Knicks, that's the direction I would go. Is I would strip it down, yeah, keep some of like the youth, the Quentin Grimes, the Emmanuel Quickly, the Obi Toppin, and just start to rebuild around RJ Barrett because you're not going anywhere with this court. It's stagnant, uh, and they they re- they clearly read just like so much of us, including. This podcast, we did talk ourselves in the Julius Randle extension. We thought the Knicks were more for real than not. We'll, we'll own up to that. Every, those people who thought that, um, some more stronger than us, some maybe a little bit weaker than us, we were all fucking wrong about it. I don't think the Cavs are going to follow that similar trajectory. And just knowing how gutty, gutsy they've been on defense, they, they're hell to play right now. And the fact they're still contending for a top four spot in the East when it's as competitive as it is when they're dealing with as many key absences as they've had to deal with, specifically no Colin Sexton for most of this year, losing Ricky Rubio at one point. Let's not forget about that. And now Darius Garland's banged up, and as is Karis LeVert. Maybe they're not the fourth best team in the East this year, but progress isn't linear. And we said that about the Knicks leading into the season. They could have had a worse record. They could have finished eighth, 10th in the East, but there, there could have been real progress because of development from the youngsters or maybe something you noticed about their identity, identity sustaining on defense or Julius Randall's defensive improvement holding or Mitchell Robinson taking a step forward to where he's more of a consistent presence, but they've just regressed from last year. And it's shown that the product, the team that they were fielding was anomalous. Whereas with these calves, just to reiterate it, I, I think it's clear that there's time for them to marinate and get even better from this, even if it's not happening right away. JT Alexander asked, do you think it's time for the NBA to adopt an Elam ending on a full-time basis to all games? We've seen it improve 
the past few all-star games and the Lakers Clippers game from Friday night took 20 minutes to finish the last 30 seconds, which really kills the momentum. Do you think it is ever likely to happen? And would it improve the ending of games? I, I don't want to cop out here and say, I don't know, but I honestly don't know. We can know the NBA is going to think about it. If the Elam ending becomes the standard ending across an entire G league season, and maybe they measure how that works out for anyone who is not familiar with it. Uh, the way it's going to work is at least as when you're using it for the basketball tournament specifically, um, it calls for the game clock to be shut off at the first dead ball with under four minutes in the fourth quarter. And a target score will then be established to finish the game by adding eight points to the leading team's score. The thought process here is, yeah, maybe the game is still not close, but every game theoretically then concludes with a game winner. What also happens is when it is close, it does change the way when the the clock's turned off, how you defend, um, because you could get to a point where, where one, you're not fouling to to ensure that time stops, but there's also going to points where you can't foul because that could put someone at the line to just end the game um, if they're going to hit the target score on one of those two free throws. And so I think there is some validity um, to that thinking. I am curious as to how it could impact just certain records that the NBA might be married to um, or how you measure crunch time. I guess it would just be from when the target score is added. I'd be curious what the Players Association thinks about this. I don't really know that we've heard from them on the subject. I haven't read anything. At least uh, my gut says that it won't happen anytime soon, sweepingly. But we'll know if they decide to use it across a, a G League season. There's a real, there's a real chance then that it's going to come to the NBA soon, since they do use uh, the G League for a ton of experimental purposes. And normally, when it's at, I don't want to say the, you know, let's not the deal zone. Brian Woodhurst might call it, but that's sort of been their uh, guinea pig operation. I honestly don't know how I feel about it, though. I wish I could tell you that I felt strongly, uh, one way or the other. The end of that Lakers Clippers game was brutal. I was watching it my God, it just wouldn't end. So I totally understand that, but you're also going to have to, that might be that one specifically is more about, can we change the instant replay rules? There's got to be a way to, to speed that up. Those won't necessarily go away unless they also change those rules as part of the, the Elam ending. I do think it should be on the table just because it's been entertaining for the all-star game. And again, even if these games aren't close, there's something fun about contest ending on a, on a made shot. Do you get, get to a point though, where it doesn't matter if they're blowouts because teams are just going to stop trying and they'll let parades to the, um, to like a layup line go through. I, I honestly don't know, but I do think it's, it's valid enough to think, to think about JT. I just don't know if it would make it better. I think if the NBA doesn't want to go that route, there definitely needs to be changes to instant replay. And there needs to be changes to that, regardless of whether the NBA adopts the Elam ending across, uh, all games, you know, the regular season specifically. Jay Dobbs asks, of the Pacers, Pistons, Magic, and Rockets, who has the best chance of winning a playoff series in the next three years? Holy shit. This is a great question. Uh, Adam would definitely pick the Magic because he's just somehow in love, love with their mishmash of non-stars there. I think you could argue, I'm going to say the, I'm going to say the Pacers just because they have Miles Turner and Malcolm Brogdon still there. And if you decide to keep them, go forward with Tyrese Halliburton, who is really good. You have Chris Duarte. You bring back TJ Warren if he's healthy. Um, plus this year's pick, which could be like top five, top seven, whatever. I'm going to say them. I think after that, there'd be a case for the Pistons just because there's a chance that they end up having, as soon as next season, the best player among these four teams in Cade Cunningham. I really think that he's 
that good. I might pick the Magic next then, or even consider them over the Pistons, just by virtue of them being in the Eastern Conference. If Jonathan Isaac is healthy next year, they did just get Markel Fultz back. What if Jalen Suggs hits? Franz Wagner looks spectacular. Um, so they could be in the discussion for number two. I'm going to say the Pacers. They can clearly trade their way out of this. But as of right now, entering March 1st, 2022, I would expect the Pacers to win a playoff series before the Pistons, Magic, or Rockets, the latter of whom just has a tough go of it in the, the West. And they don't necessarily have the tentpole prospect. We know that the Pacers have it in Tyrese Halliburton, plus really good above replacement level players, fringe all-stars and Malcolm Brogdon and Miles Turner, plus a top pick this year. I guess the magic, they, they're a hodgepodge as well. Um, and the, you know, if you're going to say, Oh, well they have Jalen Suggs. Yeah. But the Rockets have Jalen green and uh, who was playing pretty well leading into the all-star break. So uh, it's just the West is so tough. And I, I think the magic are a little bit deeper where you're looking at their immediate optionality of the outcomes may not be as high long-term. I think that really just depends on what you think the ceiling of Suggs is um, or what you think Isaac can turn into on offense. Maybe I'm just mis, uh, mistaking like Franz Wagner's peak. Is this someone who could be a lot better than even he's shown so far? Um, Houston feels like it has more flyers with Shangun, Christian Wood, Jalen Green, even Usman Garuba still sort of an unknown. And then all those picks moving forward for themselves. But the Magic could also feel some urgency maybe before the Rockets to go out and get some win now talent. I might just default to the Pistons at the second best because I'm that in love with Cade Cunningham and they're going to have another top pick to add there. Though they could wind up trading Jeremy Grant this season. I still think the Rockets are going to be fourth for me, if only by virtue of them playing in the, the Western Conference. This will be our, oh, that is our last Discord question. So now we can move on to the Twitter questions. Had a, had a bunch of good ones here. First one comes from NBA Stat Nerd. Which rookie has the highest PER on a team currently in the playoffs or playing spot? Uh, I set, if you want to look at just not having any qualifiers, you have basically Jaden Springer in Philly, 26.7. PER, but I wanted people who had played like semi actual minutes. So I, I set the benchmark at rookies this season who qualified for the, uh, or have played at least 500 minutes, excuse me, sorted them by PER. Um, Omar year seven came up. He's at 18.4. Alperin Shangun is two at 16.3, followed by Scotty Barnes at 15.9 and Evan Mobley at 15.7. Jonathan Kaminga is five at 14.7. And Franz Wagner is right behind him at 14.7. As well, I decided to also look at the value over re replacement player of rookies who uh, have played at least um, 500 minutes again this season, or did I have them qualified for the minutes per game leaderboard? Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, since they, oh no, five, minimum 500 minutes. So Evan Mobley leads the pack here with 1.3. Uh, Scotty Barnes is two at one. Herbert Jones is third at 0.6. Uh, and so those three, they come from potential playoff teams. The Pelicans are still in the race out East, but Mobley and Barnes are clearly, you know, they're right there in the thick of rotations for actual playoff teams. And then if you're looking at it though, PER for playoff teams, it's, it's year at seven comes in because he's actually played 611 minutes for the heat has shown some stuff around the basket um, from the stuff that I have seen of him. And they've also needed him more at points this season because of all the injuries that they were dealing with. Uh, I don't, expect him to be like someone who's on the floor in the playoffs. Scotty Barnes though, would be the next and Mobley. They're right there. They rank third and fourth overall in rookie PER of a minimum 500 minutes played, but they're also both just coming from 
uh, bona fide playoff teams and really prominent parts of their rotation. And it's pretty wild that Jonathan Kaminga, who is still under at below average at 14.7 with average considered 15 and still pretty high for rookie. And he's playing now a regular role for a team in the Warriors that as of right now is I still think the second most serious contender in the, the Western Conference. Next question comes from Daniel Tice. Excuse me, Mitchell Harris. Daniel Tice fan club is next. Mitchell Harris asked, do Westbrook's triple doubles actually help his teams or is it that his team wins more when his teammates shoot better, which is when he gets triple doubles? I always wonder this because it always seems assists is the hardest part for him. So lifetime, Russell Westbrook's teams are 142 and 51 when he records a triple double. That's a 73.6 win percentage, which is super high. I think we've seen the limitations of this, though, in recent years. Since leaving Oklahoma City, his teams were 32 and 23 when he records a triple double which is a 58.2 winning percentage. You're still above 500 there, but it's noticeably lower. I don't necessarily know what value to ascribe to triple doubles other, other than I don't necessarily know that they're a reflection of winning contributions. Uh, they're more volume than anything. They're, they're impressive volume, especially when you're averaging over the course of an entire season. But I think when it comes to Russell Westbrook, how is he getting those triple doubles? Are they coming within the flow of an offense? No, they're coming because he dominates an offense more often than not. Like forget about the, the rebound chasing, but the assists, like this is not someone who's going to just whip the ball around and throw these touch passes after playing off the ball himself a ton. Like he needs to dominate the action and try and collapse defenses and uh, attack the basket. And that changes the way that players around him need to play. And if you insert him into ecosystems where there are other alpha ball handler scores, offensive players, whatever, I think you're more likely to struggle, even if he is getting a triple double. And we've seen that in Houston, we've seen it in Washington, and now we've seen it with the, the Lakers. So when he is your lone star and I, is he a star? If you put him on a team where he is just the, the center of everything and you have like actual competent role players around him, like this isn't someone who can lift up uh, a fringe contender, I guess, like he, kind of did in 2016, 2017 post KD. This isn't a, you know, he couldn't have, if you gave him the Nuggets supporting cast would be my point. They're not going to have the same type of season that they've had with Nicole Jokic, Sands, Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr. But if you did put him, just surround him with shooting in a five who can set screens, like we saw with a Steven Adams, doesn't necessarily need to space the floor. I do think that team could be better than this current Lakers team, but he is no longer good enough to want to dictate the terms of your roster to that degree. And that's where it becomes difficult. And the context of his triple doubles are just, they came because he had a monopoly over the offense specifically, and he is no longer good enough to do that. Or even if you think he is, there are going to be limitations to how good your team can be if that's the route you're taking. And as of right now, if you're asking me whether I think a Russell Westbrook triple double is a harbinger of whether his team is winning or losing, I just don't think it's be indicative of anything other than what his role is on that team or any given night was LeBron out. And that's why he's taking control. But if I was forced to choose, no, I don't think that Russell Westbrook having a triple double necessarily ensures that your team has a better chance of winning. It's like Mitchell also said here, a lot of it could just come down to his teammates hitting shots. It's also not on him if they, if they miss shots. I think it's really though, again, his, the context of his role on the offense is what matters more than anything. And when he can't be the, the all everything, he is going to struggle. And I think we've reached the point in his career where even if he is the all everything, uh, you have to still surround him with very high end plug and play talent for you to even be a noticeably above average NBA roster. Daniel Tice fan club asks, what percentage of Robert Williams' finishes around the rim or alley oops and putbacks? So Robert Williams, as of this recording, 
has finished, has taken 259 shot attempts of some form at the rim. He has made 202 of them. So shooting 78% there. Uh, so of those 202 makes, 83 come off, uh, 86, excuse me, come off of alley oops. Uh, so that ends up being 42.6% of all his makes come as the finisher on an alley oop. And then 61 of his 202 makes at the rim are on putbacks. So that comes out to 23.6%. Um, of his looks around the rim. Uh, so that's, you know, almost two thirds, maybe more than two, th- about it's more than two thirds of his offensive scoring uh, or his rim attempts come or rim makes come as alley-oop finishes or, or putbacks. Uh, so there you go. Daniel Tice fan club. Alex asks, how does points per game relate to players' usage rate? So usage percentage, I don't want to go through the readout, the calculation of, of the way that it is, calculated it's just too complex to read through on this but it's accounting for field goal attempts free throw attempts turnovers it's supposed to be an estimate of the percentage of team plays used by a player while he's on the floor and when so many team plays are going to end in a shot attempt or free throw attempt specifically never mind the the turnovers and then there's the minutes played element but when it's those shot attempts um, the more shots you take in theory the, the the more points you're going to score and so the the higher your shot attempts, the the higher your usage rate is is going to be. So there is that, and free throw attempts, obviously, too. So there is that corollary. And unless you're just like one of the worst scores of all time, there doesn't have to be this you know, direct correlation between usage rate and how many points per game you're scoring. But you're probably only taking shots, finishing plays in the first place, because you are a valuable scorer. So if your points per game are higher, the chances are that you are going to have a higher usage rate. There are of course things that can you know, factor into that. If you're not getting to the foul line because you're exclusively just sort of a, a catch and shoot guy. Um, if you're someone who doesn't have a ton of control over the offense, so you're not even necessarily committing turnovers, you're just passing the ball to someone else, which this, you know, the most basic form of usage is not accounting for assists that you dole out. Yeah. In theory, you could have a lower usage rate and, and just, there are guys that have averaged a ton of points in the past that don't have, these super high usage rates, um, especially if they're, you know, when you're looking at the, also the other thing, when you're looking at the calculation for usage rate, like it's not making any delineation between threes and, and two point attempts. You can take fewer shot attempts while having a, a higher usage, uh, a lower usage rate. Uh, if you're just taking a ton of threes and, and like, you know, uh, think of like a Joe Harris last year, he's averaging over 14 points per game. And like his usage is, is a hair over 18, which is just like not super duper high. Um, so th- there's that context there, but I, I would think generally there's going to be a correlation between like the, the more you're scoring, the higher your usage rate is going to be, because in theory, you're just finishing a higher percentage of your team's plays. That was sort of a, a stumbling explanation, but that's, that's really the gist of it. Uh, this question comes from truth. He asked, why do casuals hate stats, basketball fans? Mostly because stats are facts. Nerds and in, nerd invented basketball. When the haters of stats argue about their players, they don't hesitate to use them. Nerd haters are casual. Highlights kids, even if their favorite player, coach, are using those stats. So I don't, I don't like using the word casual as like a denigration. There are casual basketball fans because it's not their favorite sport or they don't pay super close attention to the NBA until after the Super Bowl or something. Or maybe they only pay attention in the playoffs. Maybe they only follow one team, or maybe they're just not into the nitty-gritty. So I don't want to bemo- like 
not the moment. I don't want to like label someone a casual as, as, as an insult. Um, and I don't even know that all casuals hate stats as basketball, like the basketball stats, excuse me. Um, I really just think that there's been a poor job in, in some, in many instances of communicating what these stats mean and how to portray them. So we see them misused or neglected altogether, but there's a way to marry the eye test and, and numbers. And it's been done by many people for a really long time. There can be, it still feels like the, the stats world can be too gatekeepy or, or condescending at one point. And some people do use them as be alls. Some people just misportray them in, entirely, especially when you're looking at kitchen sink metrics, or if you just value points per game over everything else. Uh, but I don't really think that if you're a casual fan, you necessarily hate stats. If you're just someone who is more invested in the eye test, you might not place as much stock in stats. I don't know whether that's right or wrong. Um, neither one to me is the end or all be all. You need to tether them together. It's, it's a marriage of, of both. Cubone X, XZ asks, and we'll finish here, which MVP candidate has the worst supporting cast? The answer without going into any detail I think would just be Nikola Jokic. He's missing the you know two uh, two of the three best players on his team in Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray. His second best player this season has been Aaron Gordon. Maybe it's been Will Barton at points. Um, you can try and look at more scientific ways of this. I did try to look at which MVP candidates had the fewest number of teammates who qualified for the minutes per game leaderboard while also ranking um, or checking in with an above average VORP. Um, and that really wasn't too effective. You could look at if you averaged out the value over replacement players of their supporting cast among uh, qualified uh, players who qualify for the minutes per game, that might be more, more useful. But there's like a tie here, basically, where most of these guys have six or, or seven or eight or nine teammates who have qualified for the minutes per game leaderboard and have an above average VORP. Just to try and this is not the way I would do it. Um, but if you looked at the net ratings of teams when these stars are off the court, Nikola Jokic is also going to win that. The Nuggets are getting outscored by 12 points per 100 possessions when he's not on the floor. There are obviously other influencers here, like who are they playing without him? Are there certain players that they're just tethering to Nikola Jokic's minutes almost exclusively who could really help out in the times that he's off the court? Yes, that's absolutely a possibility. Um, but when he just comes up so much, even when you look at net rating swing, the Nuggets are, I think, 22.4 points better per 100 possessions when Jokic is on the court, that is the single highest net rating swing in the league. So that keeps coming up. Steph actually happens to be number two when looking at higher volume players. And I'm not even, you don't even need to go by higher volume players specifically. It's just among anyone who has logged at least 250 minutes this year, Nikola Jokic has the, the single highest net rating swing in the league. And again, that's not an, an end all uh, be all necessarily, but it's 22.5 points is no joke. Uh, and then you have, like I said, Steph checks in at number two at 16.7. There's like a huge gap there. When you're also just looking at the net ratings with players off, um, Steph's, the Warriors are minus 5.2. That's the second lowest mark. Again, there's a huge gap there, though, between uh, the Curry uh, and Jokic minutes. And that's kind of impressive knowing that Draymond Green plays so or played so many of his minutes um, with Steph. So the Warriors have, I don't want to say hamstrung themselves during certain stretches there, but. It's not, they haven't put there. I, there are other things I think they could have done better to try and survive the Steph minutes is what I'm getting at. Pre Clay Thompson's return, pre, pre Draymond Green back injury. The Bulls are minus five with DeRozan off the floor. And so that's the third highest mark. Even LeBron, like the Lakers, they're minus 3.6 per 100 when he's off the court. So yo, the Nuggets, the Jokic is even, the Jokic list minutes for the Nuggets are even worse than that. 
that's not a perfect comparison because you're getting into a point where you're comparing minutes from all these different rosters where stars even on the court. I do think it's among the foremost MVP candidates. I, I think you have to say it's, it, it is Jokic though, because Steph maybe comes pretty close, but you're discrediting a lot of what Draymond did then the rest of this season. Even just looking at number two options specifically this year, it would have to be by far, or the second best player, let's say. I think it's still Jokic. Like DeMar DeRozan has Zach Levine. Um, LeBron is Anthony Davis, even if he's not available. I guess after that, there's the huge drop-off. Joel Embiid is interesting. The Sixers are a minus three per 100 possessions when he's off the court. And the second best teammate has been Tyrese Maxey this year instead of Ben Simmons. Maxey was really good, though. But if you wanted to make a case for that, you can't anymore because James Harden's there. Let's just not forget Seth Curry was there, too. Um, are either of those two players, Maxi Curry, would you prefer them to Aaron Gordon or Will Barton? Uh, maybe. I wouldn't blame you if you did. Wouldn't blame you if you didn't. Giannis, you know, having Drew and Chris Middleton, the Bucks are shallow, but those two guys at the top, that's a luxury that not a lot of other guys have. Chris Paul is Devin Booker and just a deep roster. And hey, Devin Booker has Chris Paul, even though Chris Paul is currently injured, and the rest of the Suns roster as well. I guess there could be a case for Luka, but the Mavs are actually winning the minutes, 3.7 points per 100 possessions when he's off the court this year. That actually shocked me. It's not Jimmy Butler. It's not Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell. It's definitely not John Morant. I think it would have to be between Jokic, Curry, and maybe Embiid, but like you kind of remove him now. If you have a different answer, feel free to get at me, but I'm I'm almost positive that Jokic is the MVP candidate with the worst supporting cast, and I think that's going to give him a lot of MVP oomph when it comes to the arguments. I don't know. That's not wrong, but I do think we need to be careful not to necessarily discredit players who have a better supporting cast or a healthier supporting cast. It's not their fault um, that they're not working with less. So what Jokic is doing is impressive. He would be my MVP pick if the season ended today, but there are a lot of justifiable candidates, I think at least four, maybe five, perhaps even six at this point. And I'm not someone who is all participation trophy like here that just wants to hand the MVP award to everybody. Thank you for sticking with me. If you've made it this long, uh, we will be back for another podcast this Friday. If you if you have made it this far, though, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your iTunes, uh, wherever you get your podcast. We ask that you do head over to iTunes and throw us five-star ratings and reviews, written reviews. In addition, those five-star ratings help a ton, even if you're not using iTunes. Follow us on YouTube, youtube.com, Hardware Knox. Join our Discord, links in the podcast description, along with the, the YouTube channel link. Um, and until next time, I leave you all with a shout-out to the one, the only, Frank Neal Keenan.